This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. The 9-11 attacks mean Al-Qaeda will always have a place in history, and the years since 9-11 have seen ever more information about al-Qaeda coming into the public domain, not least because of the documents and files seized in Abbottabad, Pakistan, where bin Laden was living before he was killed. Well, Nelly LaHood, senior fellow in New America's International Security Programme, has had access to a lot of papers, and she joins us now. So, hello, first of all. Hi, Owen. Thank you for hosting me. And just uh, tell us, first of all, what papers have you seen? Well, to to make it clear to the listeners, the papers are actually accessible to anyone. The first batch of declassification occurred through the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point. At the time, it was the Office of the Director of National Intelligence that, that did the declassification. And then subsequently, that same office declassified documents on its own website under the Bin Laden bookshelf. But then in November 2017, the CIA declassified everything that they're going to declassify, a massive volume of files. We're talking about thousands and thousands of files, including text files, audio and video files. And they didn't categorize them. So I must have clicked on thousands of files before I determined that really the text files is where I'm going to find Archives and Tama Communications. And with the help of two research assistants, we went through all the text files, nearly 97,000 files. And sure enough, we found Al-Qaeda's internal communications there, nearly 6,000 Arabic pages. And once we identified the internal communications, that's when I really proceeded to reading and analyzing these documents and, and writing the book. And you are the only person, I mean, you and your team are the only people who have looked at these documents in this detail, do you think? I believe I'm the only person that I, who has read all the documents, but maybe there are others elsewhere. I don't know. But yes, I've, I've read all the, all the, the, the 6,000 pages. Yeah. And just tell us about the title of the book and who published it. And so if people want to find the full sort of version of what we're talking about today, where they can go for that. Well, the book's title is The Bin Laden Papers, How the Abu Dhabi Raid Revealed the Truth About Al-Qaeda, Its Leader and His Family. And it was published in April this year by Yale University Press. Now then, let's just talk about what you found out from the archive. And I should say, you know, the series is the future of, and we will we will briefly address that uh, at the end of the interview, but by its nature on this topic, a lot is going to be on on the past uh, before we just look ahead a bit. And, you know, you find lots of interesting things in these these papers. And uh, let me just start with one to kick off with. And that is, uh, yeah, the general understanding has been that the idea for the 9-11 attacks was Khalid Sheikh Mohammed's, that it was his idea. And, And you found a document which suggests bin Laden at least claimed it was his idea. 
I, I don't think this was a claim. He had no reason to lie. But one of the papers that were recovered is a, a sheet of paper that he composed in September 2002. There are two couple of paragraphs in his own handwriting on this. And we find out from these paragraphs that he was inspired by a specific plane crash that occurred on October 31, 1999, when an Egypt air flight crashed off the New England coast, killing 217 people. It turned out that the pilot, Gamil al-Batuti, had vengeful motives against his employer. And these couple of paragraphs in bin Laden's handwriting, they, they reveal that upon hearing the news, bin Laden turned to the two people who were with him at the time and said, well, why didn't he crash into one of the financial towers? And then in the proceeding, in the following paragraph, he says, well, this is how the idea was conceived in, in my mind. And this is when we started the planning. The general assumption is that it was Khalid Sheikh Mohammed who came up with the idea. This was included in the 9-11 Commission report and so on. And it's not, it's not a question of competition here between bin Laden and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. And there's no reason why bin Laden would want to lie about this. Isn't there a reason? I mean, because th- this was after the attack, right? This document was written after 9-11. Right. It was written in September 2002. But I mean, he was quite boastful, wasn't he? I mean, he used, you know, and he had hubris. I mean, he, he, he used, I mean, I, I remember something he said that, you know, he understood that the towers would collapse in exactly that way because he was an engineer. And it was extremely unconvincing uh, when he said it that, you know, he really did predict that. And no, I, no, that's not, that's not part of the notes. That's not part I'm of sure, the Sure, that's a different thing. I'm just saying that in general terms, wasn't he quite a sort of, you know, he, he, had, he had a very exaggerated view of himself and he'd love to claim this kind of thing. The, the paragraphs, the way they were written, this was not bousting at all. This is by accident. So he didn't really claim that he was, he somehow came up with a, with a brilliant idea. He was inspired by an event that happened. I don't see any anything that is irreconcilable between between what occurred and bin Laden's notes here. He, it's not he was not showing off and and in fact this sheet of paper that I'm talking about he ended up stopping in the middle of the sentence because he was disappointed with two of the hijackers about their inability to do anything when they sent them to the United States. So clearly he was recording too much information. So it's not a question of Bousting, or, or you know, he was. There is no showing off at all here, okay. and yep. that's all the more reason why we should really believe him. No, sure, and you've got you know the sense of the documents and everything because you've been through them all, and you can you know you you'll be able to work out when when you know boastful claims are being made and and otherwise. Another very interesting thing that came out of the papers, I thought, was which I guess people know, but it was that Al Qaeda really was taken aback by the scale of the U.S. response to nine eleven. Just talk us through that. We learned from from the letters that uh, that Al Qaeda did not expect that the United States would launch a war against Afghanistan. They hoped, or they expected that they would do a limited airstrike. So when the war occurred, Al Qaeda had no plan A, and we find out that the Taliban's regime collapsed rapidly. We find, we discover in the letters that bin Laden had to disappear out of necessity. He probably did so around November 2001. And for nearly three years, he did not communicate with his associates, even though he did release public statements. And we know this because the letters that were composed in 2004, they all seem to be briefing bin Laden about the during the past three years, what happened. 
and uh, we find Bin Laden commenting for the first time in 2004 about things that occurred in 2002. And we find one letter explicitly stating, after your disappearance. And, and so clearly he disappeared for several years and the letters that he received when they were apprising him of the situation, they were speaking about Al-Qaeda's dire conditions, the, the ordeals of Al-Qaeda. It was firstly because of the Taliban regime collapsed rapidly. And then we find out again for the first time from the letters that Mullah Omar, the leader of the um, Taliban, ordered the Arabs to evacuate Afghanistan altogether because they sensed that the air campaign was targeting Arabs and their families. Al-Qaeda was in disarray, and as well as other Arab jihadis at the time, and they had to evacuate Afghanistan. They proceeded, their first escape destination was Pakistan, and there they were met by what the letters describe as a comprehensive campaign of arrest in the large and the minor cities and quote-unquote 600 brothers were captured. So the other senior leaders of Al-Qaeda ended up heading illegally, crossing illegally into Iran, where eventually they were detained. And and, and what we also learn from the letters is is that Al-Qaeda's capabilities were shattered and Al-Qaeda was not able to mount any international terrorism after 9-11. The only attack that al-Qaeda succeeded in carrying out after 9-11 was the 2002 Mombasa bombings that that occurred in November 2002. And the reason they were able to pull it off is because the operatives had been dispatched from Afghanistan to East Africa before 9-11. Right, and 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 yeah. Despite that, it's it, it, yeah, it's very stark what you say there that that was only just one attack after nine eleven. But you know, the Western media was constantly ascribing every attack to Al Qaeda, weren't they? So you got the impression they were doing lots of stuff. That's that's you know that's uh, everything that 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 occurred was somehow it was believed that Al Qaeda was behind it, as if Al Qaeda was really at, at the center of global jihad, and in fact that was far from reality. Al Qaeda. You know, in the letters, the in the in the in the words of its own leaders, they were shattered. And and one of the reasons for that was not just the arrests in Pakistan, but also the drone campaign. And I think you've got very interesting material on that because because in the again in the West and in Pakistan, uh, the drones were you know considered very counterproductive for America to be doing it. There's all these arguments about it creates more jihadis than it destroys and so on. And and that narrative is very firmly set still. And yet your papers, the papers you've seen, show a very different story. We, I mean, initially, initially it was the campaign and the, you know, the, the US air campaign, but then they were, they really felt that they needed to hide. The drones started early, but they escalated around 2008 onwards. And this is when we find in the letters that every every second letter was reporting about, quote-unquote, the martyrdom of brothers in, in uh, North Waziristan. But in the area in between, what also Al-Qaeda discovered is that they ceased to be, they ceased to feel secure in their own environment. They felt that they could be betrayed by the Afghan Taliban. They, you know, the letters spoke about how most of the Afghans were lured by American dollars. And then the drone campaign escalated around 2008. And you're absolutely right. The camp, the drones were so effective. They were effective because 
it seems that that the that that the CIA threw considerable money in terms of recruiting spies in North Waziristan and broadly in the Fatah, the federally administrative tribal areas of Pakistan. So they were able to recruit many spies. Al Qaeda's letters speak. You know, they use they use language that the area is infested with spies. We learn also from the letters that that the drones were very precise in terms of their targeting. It's not just seizing its operational activities. They couldn't even go to take the car to the garage uh, uh, as you know, they, they were so they were so precise and they had enough information reconnaissance information that that al-Qaeda didn't know what to do with them. But the other thing is what we also find out from the letters about the drones, which is often omitted by those who support the drone campaign, is that al-Qaeda managed, despite its lack of resources, managed to dismantle some spying network in the region and to figure out how the drones operated. The problem that al-Qaeda faced is that they didn't have the discipline to be able to take the security measures required to evade the drones. And as far as Al-Qaeda's security committee was concerned, it was simple to evade the drones. All they needed to do was to hide. And here we're talking about a completely different culture that the jihadis had to, uh, uh, that, that, that they were facing in North Waziristan. These people had taken up jihad to fight and not to hide. And all of a sudden they found themselves having you know, having every single movement that they made was being monitored. And the other issue that in Islam, it is unlawful to spy on fellow Muslims. And Al-Qaeda found itself having to spy on fellow Muslims in order to dismantle the spying network. So that was, these were insurmountable obstacles that Al-Qaeda faced as it tried to deal with the drone campaign. Yeah, I mean, just, just to ask you about that hiding point you made. I mean, Bin Laden is, is a very interesting letter or document that you saw where Bin Laden said, look, I can do it. I'm hiding. Uh, you know, so I, it shows that I can do it because I'm managing quite well not to not to get targeted. But it also seemed to me that the, 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 the level of hiding required was so uh, extreme that it did incapacitate them. I mean, they could hardly communicate even. Exactly. I mean, it's you're absolutely right. They spoke about movement being impossible. And this kept coming up in the letters time and again, where Bin Laden's associates, uh, associates would tell him movement is the major problem for us. So you're absolutely right. It was it was incapacitating for them. Now, then let's turn on to another topic, uh, which is you know very important for understanding you know, the success or failure of Al-Qaeda. Some people would say that its, its failure rested on its inability to control sectarian violence within its number, within its ranks. How true do you think that is, that the, the, the killing of Shias did create massive problems for Al-Qaeda and undermined bin Laden's purpose? Well, it's uh, it's interesting you, you say that. I mean, there were many failures for Al Qaeda. I mean, those that we that we just uh, spoke about, in the fact that Al Qaeda was incapacitated and couldn't carry out any any international terrorism. Now, it's the the other issue of of the sectarianism was a was a catch twenty two for Al Qaeda. Uh, initially, the parent group of the Islamic State that was led by Abu Musab al Zarqawi seemed like a lifeline for Al Qaeda. Um, when Zarqawi asked to merge with Al Qaeda in 2004, 
This pleased bin Laden very much. The hope was that Zarqawi would unite jihadi militants in Iraq under one umbrella, and it would all act in unison against the occupying forces. Now, Zarqawi failed to, to unite these groups and, consoli- and to consolidate himself in Iraq, and he, and he focused his attacks against the Shia. And clearly, that's not what al-Qaeda signed up for. They gave Zarqawi the brand al-Qaeda because they wanted al-Qaeda to be in the news for killing Americans and not Iraqis, you know, who were praying in their mosques or shopping in the marketplace. So we find al-Qaeda's lead- leaders urging him to minimize his attacks in Iraq. And they spent a good deal of their time writing letters mediating between jihadi groups in Iraq. And the situation never improved. Um, it, it, when Zarqawi was killed in 2006, the situation went from bad to worse because Zarqawi's successors declared themselves to be the Islamic State of Iraq uh, that year in 2006. And by 2007, they stopped responding to al-Qaeda's letters altogether. And it took bin Laden a while to read the situation Clearly, that's because his disposition was to think well of his fellow Muslims or his fellow jihadis, in this case, the Iraqi group. And in some ways, he was naive about it. And it was probably in 2010 when he understood that the Iraq-based group had gone rogue. Um, and, um, And that same year, the leaders of the Islamic State of Iraq were killed. And we find bin Laden writing to one of his associates, um, noting that this should serve as an opportunity for us to change the name and remove any reference to statehood in the name and to see if we could unite as many factions as possible. Now, um, but, you know, that group ended up having, coming up with uh, with new leaders without consulting al-Qaeda. And, um, and eventually that group eclipsed al-Qaeda. Well, let's just uh, deal with Abbottabad as well and how he was discovered uh, by the Americans, how his location was was established. So you've got an absolutely fascinating passage on, on that because you, you're basically saying the documents you've seen contain clues that go beyond what is generally understood. So can you just talk us through that one? Well, that was the last thing that I expected to discover in the letters. How did they discover bin Laden's hideout? Um, but... Uh, so to, to put this in context, bin Laden and his family went to great lengths to evade the authorities. The reason why we have these letters is because he didn't leave the compound and all communications occurred um, uh, occurred through, through letters. Now, these, these issues are not mentioned in the letters for security reasons. But fortunately for us, sometimes in 2010, bin Laden writes to his top associate saying, in order to speed up his public statements, he should perhaps um, uh, send his his public statements immediately to the jihadi media that that publishes al-Qaeda statements. And we find the response of his associate saying, you know, I thought long and hard about this, and absolutely not, because that would really compromise our security measures. And in that letter, he tells bin Laden how the letters are getting transmitted. So we learn from this and a few other letters, a few clues from other letters, that the the letters were transmitted through a closed circle, and that consisted of two intermediaries and one and, and one courier in between. One intermediary on the side of North Waziristan, one intermediary on the side of bin Laden, 
and a Korea in, in between. What is fascinating about all this is that at no point did Bin Laden meet any of these people. The courier in between didn't know what he was carrying and had no he had absolutely no clue about the items that he was that he was carrying. And the two people who lived next door to Bin Laden, the two security guards, they played a minor role in the sense that they would take the outgoing and incoming letters, they would meet the intermediary on the side of Bin Laden, somewhere perhaps, most likely, I would say, in Peshawar, where the exchange would occur. But the main people, the two intermediaries and the courier, did not meet Bin Laden, and the courier, as I said, didn't know um, didn't know what he was doing. At a certain point, we know from the letters, the intermediary on north on the North Waziristan side was captured briefly by the Pakistani intelligence. So we don't know what happened, but he was released afterwards. And in January 2011, the courier himself was captured by the Pakistani intelligence. Now, you can. Uh, you can reconstruct or try to imagine whether the Pakistani intelligence shared intelligence with the CIA, whether the CIA was spying on the Pakistani intelligence. There could be different possibilities. But my own explanation is that the capture of the intermediary briefly, and then certainly the courier who was captured in January 2011 might have led to discovering Bin Laden's hideout. Right, so that tells more of the story, but it could still, the established story, which is that one of those guards you mentioned, the security guards uh, called Kuwaiti, that he was the one that was, you know, discovered. That could still be true, that the Americans got onto his movement from Peshawar back to Abbottabad and that helped them as well, right? Uh, that is, that, that was part of, this was the, the CIA's narrative. And that is, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that it is, that it is false, right. but but there is something completely uh, a missing part of that story, which I was able to uncover from the letters. Um, but Abu Ahmad Al Kuwaiti uh, was not the courier. The courier, um, I, I you know, I am very confident who the courier was, and I'm also very confident that the courier didn't know what he was doing. But he was the he courier, in the, but he was a courier in the sense that he took it from Bin Laden to an intermediary. Sure, but the, but he never went to North Waziristan, so right. he would have taken it to a. So, but yes, they did, and I and I do say in the in the book that they did play this minor role. And and if you recall, the intelligence communities, well, at least based on the media reports, for a very long time, they were looking for Bin Laden in the Fatah, not in Abbottabad. So all of a sudden, it was around, based on all the literature that I've read, it was around. August 2010, when they turned their attention to Abu Tabat. And this is when they started having these clues. So Abu Ahmad al-Kuwaiti had been there for a very long time. It could have been anybody other than Abu Ahmad al-Kuwaiti who was living next door, and they would have still found him. Yep. And, and did those intermediaries and couriers ever get arrested? Or I mean, you say they were detained by the Pakistanis for a bit, but did they ever face a trial or, or were they ever picked up by the Americans or they just sort of fade away into into life again? Your information is as good as mine. Right. I, I, uh, I know one of them was, was captured briefly by the Pakistani intelligence. Maybe, maybe that gave the Pakistani intelligence a clue. Maybe they released him because they wanted to track him down. Or maybe he volunteered some information. I wouldn't know. And then 
the courier happens to be the brother-in-law of that intermediary. And that's, in my sense, when the, the courier was captured in January 2011, this must have given extra clues. I'd like to ask you about Hamza bin Laden, the, the son of Osama bin Laden, who was trying to see his father for, for quite some months, wasn't he, to get to Abbottabad to meet him, and his father wanted to meet him. Uh, you say very clearly in the book that he never made that journey. Why? How come are you so sure that Hamza bin Laden never went to Abbottabad? Well, judging by the letters, we know that he and his mother had been detained in Iran until August 2010. Bin Laden would have liked for the two of them to join, to join him in Abu Tabad, and and, uh, the situation was far too complicated. But eventually, the top associate from North Waziristan thought that it would be too dangerous to send Hamza at the time with his mother. And, and, And he was concerned not just about Hamza, but also about the people that he would be sending uh, uh, Hamza with and in one letter he explicitly tells Bin Laden I would rather that Hamza get martyred here with us rather than have him captured that would be a big problem for all of us and as late as April 26 that's a few days before the raid we find Bin Laden giving permission to his top associate to send, because his top associate had given him several alternative routes to, to send Hamza. And he he chose which route in April 26. And the very, we also, one of the unique documents that were discovered in Abu Tabad is a family document that was uh, transcribed by one of bin Laden's daughters. They transcribed all the conversations that they were having, having in, in the compound in response to the Arab Spring. They were trying to prepare bin Laden's response to the Arab Spring. And the very last paragraph, which occurred a few hours before the raid, we find bin Laden telling his family, I've spoken, and I'm you know, roughly quoting him, I told Khalid, and I'm going to tell Hamza when he comes, that neither of them should be speaking publicly. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Okay, uh, just two questions. When you say that the routes were given, routes were given, that, that was routes for Hamza to get to the house? Right. Right. And, and how many hours before, I'll, I'll tell you why I'm asking this in a moment. How many hours before the raid was Bin Laden saying, I'll tell this to Hamza when he comes? This would have been three to four hours, maybe. Oh, really? There was a, I, yeah. I mean, probably less. Yeah. Okay. Because the reason I'm I, I asking you all these questions is that I, I went to Islamabad uh, you know, uh, as soon as the attack happened, as soon as Bin Laden was killed, and spoke to an ISI, Pakistan intelligence uh, official, who was speaking in an official capacity. I mean, this this was a statement from them. And he uh, said that Hamza was in the compound when bin Laden was killed. And I said, well, that that can't be right because he's not amongst the arrested and he's not amongst the killed. And they said, no, the Americans must have taken Hamza with them 
and I so I I got a question in, put into White House briefing you know, within a few hours. BBC correspondent there put the question and said, you know, well, well, did you take two people away? To which the Americans said very firmly, no, no, we only took one. I, it made me wonder whether Hamza had got to the compound and left it, and that he had led the Americans there. But you're saying that can't be right. It can't be right. Absolutely not. No, no, so, it's it's a you know the the the, the last entry in that uh, family document was just uh, uh, was just a few hours before the raid. How do you know that, by the way? Is just a note to, because they every entry every entry they have the date on top of it mm. on top of the paragraph when they were having the conversation, and uh, so uh, no, and 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 everything was set in place, and and they were having a great deal of trouble even to. To bring, to bring um, Ben Laden's wife, so it, it, it is absolutely not possible that uh, that this occurred. One of the things that comes out of the papers that's particularly uh, useful is is Al Qaeda's relationship with people, like a relationship with Iran, relationship with the you know, understanding of the Americans, of the Afghan Taliban, and so on. So uh, you've mentioned a couple of times the Iran aspect to this, that a lot of these Al-Qaeda people, after they were chased out of Pakistan, ended up in Iran, a very surprising place for them to go. So uh, can you just spell out for us what you learnt, I mean, in brief terms, what you learnt about why Al-Qaeda was in Iran and what the Iranians were trying to achieve and so on? Sure. We know so much about this now because of the letters than we did before. Iran was far from being an escape destination for Al-Qaeda. But in the aftermath of the Taliban regime's collapse in December 2001, Al-Qaeda was stuck, as I said earlier. And, and you know, Pakistan no longer was no longer safe. So many Al-Qaeda senior leaders and their families crossed illegally into Iran. There, the letters reveal they were supported by Sunni militants referred to as the Baluch brothers. They were, these were Sunni militants who were working against the Iranian regime. And these, the Baluch uh, brothers, were happy to help Al-Qaeda forge IDs and rent houses. For almost a year, they were able to evade the authorities. Now, Iran clearly knew of their presence, but couldn't track them down because they kept a very low profile and used their phones sparingly. So the authorities began tracking the Baluch brothers. And once they, you, you know, and it's, and it's by tracking the Baluch brothers, they were able to, to get to Al-Qaeda. And around December 2002, they managed to track them down. Initially, they imprisoned the men and the women and children were more or less under house arrest. But this proved to be troublesome for them. The, the prisoners started going on hunger strikes and so on. And every time the women, you know, tried to visit them, they needed to comply with the segregation of the sexes. And during these visits, some of the detainees would manage to escape. So eventually, Iran decided to, if you like, give them some upgrades. They they put them all into a large compound. And the conditions in detention were quite poor. And the medical conditions of many of the detainees, including women and children, were utterly neglected. We know all this because the situation was so dire that in 2008, Osama bin Laden's son, Saad, managed to escape from detention in Iran. And upon arrival in North Waziristan, he wrote this lengthy letter to his father, a 15-page letter, where we have a blow-by-blow description of the conditions they endured in detention. 
And after that, Al-Qaeda managed to capture an Iranian diplomat. And this is when the situation began to be quite troubling for Iran. The detainees, more than that, the detainees began to riot against the prison authorities on at least two occasions they rioted. We know from the letters that that one of bin Laden's daughters, she was hit by, uh, she was hit on the shoulders by by one of the Iranian prison authorities. So it was it, it was a much more complicated process, and there is nothing in the letters that shows any collaboration between Al Qaeda and and Iran. The hostility toward Iran is palpable throughout the letters. Exactly. The the Iranians were detaining them, and yet the Americans portrayed this as support at one point, didn't they? I think under under Trump, uh, saying that the the that the Iranians were supporting Al Qaeda in some way, which was which was sort of misleading and knowingly misleading. You say. Actually, it wasn't just under Trump. It was also under the Obama administration because the Obama administration would have had the letters. Uh, you know, they 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 had the letters in. May 2011, they, I'm sure they had an army of analysts who poured over the letters and they continued to make allegations that somehow there was a marriage of convenience between Iran and Al-Qaeda. Clearly, this has to have been the most inconvenient marriage of convenience between, uh, between two entities. And now, were they doing it knowingly? Were they misreading the letters? I'm going to let others to, to speak about it. But from my analytical perspective, the letters make it absolutely clear that there was no collaboration and low, no, no relationship in terms of support between Iran and Al-Qaeda. Yeah. Uh, tell us about bin Laden's attitude to the US, because you know, obviously he famously talked about the fire enemy at the beginning of his campaign, if you like, and that was a, a big innovation. And, and But then that, that, that sort of policy changed. And there were phases in the policy, weren't there? Can you tell us about those? I mean, bin Laden's views of the United States remained, you know, consistent. We learned from the letters that, and also from some of his public statements, but, the, but they're more spelled out in the letters, that he had hoped that the 9-11 would deliver a decisive blow that would force the United States to withdraw its military forces from Muslim-majority states. And he thought that he could achieve that because the Americans would take to the streets and would replicate the anti-Vietnam War protest and would put pressure on their on their governments to do that. Clearly, 9-11 did, did the, the opposite. The, the hostility towards the United States was always maintained. And by 2010, we find bin Laden wanting to to do even more. This time, his group had been really incapacitated, and we find him writing to his associates, saying that unless we change our strategy, Al-Qaeda is going to come to an end as a group. And his new strategy was to achieve what he called a balance of terror with the United States. And he wanted to do, th- to do so by destroying 30% of the American economy. And this is where we find the letters. We have, we have some letters that would um, that actually give us a detailed account of his future plans. He wanted to destroy oil tankers exporting oil to the United States. And he wanted to, to sink the largest oil tankers. Here, he did his homework. There's a limited number of these vessels in the world about 730 of them. And each one of them 
carries up to 2.2 million barrels of crude oil. And the, the idea was to carry out simultaneous attacks targeting these oil tankers along several shipping routes. And his plans were highly detailed and methodical. He thought of everything, the surveillance methods the operatives should follow, the type of wooden boat they should purchase, the volume of explosives they should have, and, and so on. And he believed that the attacks would have an impact on the income of all Americans. And again, he anticipated that they would take to the streets and, you know, put pressure on their on their government. We find what is what, you know, I, I said it was consistent, his picture, but we find him, there is by 2010, we find bin Laden having, if you like, a restrained admiration of the American people. In one letter, he says, you know, they are the original source of power in the United States. We find him speaking more of the al-Aqala in America, those who are the public intellectuals who are critical of their government's policies. So we find him being concerned less about shedding the blood of Americans and more interested in their votes. And this is, you know, the, I, don't, I don't want to romanticize him here, but clearly he his, his thinking evolved and he was we see a different a different perspective on the American people than I had seen in some of his earlier public statements. Yeah, that's very, very interesting. But you're saying that yeah, he couldn't really act on it yeah, by the time he'd thought of it in this way. Well, the plans were in place and he had actually authorized an operative to leave. And this operative was, you know, because of because of movement, he was unable. He was he was trying to leave North Waziristan. Fortunately, I think the Abbottabad raid made sure that this didn't happen because this same operative was uh, was captured. I think in August two thousand and eleven, a few months after the raid. Mm. Uh, now then, uh, two other countries to ask about uh, Al Qaeda relationship with. First of all, Pakistan, obviously huge issues over the years about did the ISI know where bin Laden was and so on. Did you get any hint that even if the senior leadership of the army and the ISI in Pakistan were not aware of where he was, that officials at a lower level, maybe retired officers, but people sort of from the security establishment loosely, that there were any such people who did have knowledge? Absolutely none. I mean, there are references in the letters about Pakistani brothers you know, in terms of people who were supportive of Al-Qaeda. These were mainly in North in North Waziristan. But bin Laden, as I said earlier, went to great lengths to hide from the authorities. The, the children in, in the household, and at the time of the raid, there were nine children. They hadn't been allowed to play outside without an adult supervising them because because they didn't want to draw attention to the fact that Arabs were living in that compound. As far as... The Pakistani authorities were concerned, and this is how bin Laden saw it, is that in that compound, two Pakistani brothers, Abu Ahmad al-Kuwaiti and his brother, lived there with their respective families. So bin Laden had, you know, did everything possible to hide from the authorities. So absolutely, as, as far as the authorities were concerned, we wouldn't, there was there was absolutely no no contact or no sympathy and Bin Laden couldn't count on on anybody from the Pakistani government. So it's clear. Uh, and 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 the other the other thing that is that is worth reminding people also about Bin Laden and Al Zawahiri's public statements against Pakistan 
were very clear in terms of their hostilities towards Pakistan. They called on the Pakistani people to rise and take up jihad against their government. We're talking about their public statements, not just the letters. And the letters make it make it all the more clear that this is the case. In fact, in North Waziristan, one of bin Laden's top associates, we find him in the letters asking bin Laden to turn down his attacks against Pakistan in his public statements because Al-Qaeda was convinced that the ISI was helping the CIA in North Waziristan. They were convinced that it was the ISI who were you know, supporting and allowing the infiltration of spies into the region. I mean, whether it's true or not, I don't know. But this is Al-Qaeda's perspective. This is how, what Al-Qaeda believed. So clearly they had no support whatsoever from the Pakistani government. Right. So just, just to pin that down completely, you know, it's it, it sometimes said that you know, a very Islamist officer, former head of the ISI, uh, General Hamid Gul, who's, who's now dead, but that he may have known where bin Laden was. And, you know, he had a very strange relationship with the state and, you know, much of what you said wouldn't be wouldn't rule out him having known. But you, is it your impression from the papers that he that you can't say whether he knew or not or that he definitely didn't know? I can say that not even bin Laden's associates know knew his location. It, it, it is the, the security measures they adopted that it was impossible for anyone to know. At one point, Mullah Omar sent a messenger. He wanted his messenger to meet with bin Laden, and bin Laden's top associate told him, you'll have to give me the message. You'll have to pass on the message to me because it is impossible to meet with bin Laden. Absolutely nobody knew. Not, not even not even uh, uh, the top associates of, of, of al-Qaeda knew where bin Laden was. And he wasn't. they were not meant to for security reasons. Bin Laden didn't know, for instance, where Ayman al-Zawahiri was. We get the letter from Ayman al-Zawahiri the first time he's corresponding with, with bin Laden in 2004. He tells him, I am in a safe place. This is all that bin Laden needed to know. So nobody could have known about, about bin Laden, uh, not even his associates. Relationship with the Saudis? What have you got on that? Well, again, I mean... Let, let's make it really clear to to all the listeners. Al Qaeda was not just a is not just a non-state actor. It is an anti-state actor. They they don't recognize the legitimacy of the modern nation state. From Al Qaeda's perspective, the Saudi regime was is an apostate regime, and we find from the letters that Al Qaeda that Bin Laden was hoping to assassinate the top leadership of the Saudi regime. Uh, uh, in 2004. We also have two intermediaries who were in Saudi Arabia who managed to send letters to Al-Qaeda's, uh, one of Al-Qaeda's top associates. And in these letters, we find that the Saudi authorities created many political prisons that anybody who is sympathetic with jihad and with bin Laden was 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 in prison. We find that the prisoners were being tortured in, in Saudi Arabia because of their uh, jihadi affiliation. Uh, so again, there is nothing in the letters that point to Saudi Arabia supporting al-Qaeda. Finally, the and this really helps us look ahead a bit, as uh, you know, we should do according to the title of, of the series, the relationship with the Afghan Taliban, which must persist to this day in the post-Bin Laden period. So, you know, that was a 
yeah, very important relationship before 9-11, and it's arguably an important relationship again now. So where, with the Afghan Taliban being in power in Afghanistan, where does al-Qaeda stand in Afghanistan, and what difference does that make to its, its future, do you think? Well, this is actually, it was more than surprising for me what I discovered in the letters here, probably even shocking for me, because here we find from the letters that as early as 2004, Al-Qaeda no longer felt safe in its own environment, and they felt that they would be betrayed by a large segment of the Afghan Taliban. In 2007, the letters are even very explicit about the fact that the Afghan Taliban want to dissociate themselves from Al-Qaeda and from any association with quote-unquote terrorism. In 2010, we find Ayman al-Zawahiri, bin Laden's successor, writing and fearing that there's going to be a peace deal between the Afghan Taliban and the United States, and he feared that the Afghan Taliban were ready to enter into such a deal with the United States so long if... Uh, so long as they get to return to power and would render al-Qaeda impotent. What comforted him at the time is that Mullah Omar wouldn't allow it. And from al-Qaeda's perspective, they saw a sincere Taliban movement versus the insincere Taliban movement. They were very loyal to Mullah Omar, and they thought that Mullah Omar wouldn't betray them. But the sincere, the insincere Taliban movement in their, in their views, they were ready to be on the payroll of the intelligence agencies, and they mentioned specifically the ISI. So they clearly feared many of the Afghan leaders, and they had been fearing this rapprochement between the United States and the Afghan Taliban for a very long time. They clearly were not surprised by the deal. As I said, Azawahiri predicted it as early as 2010. Now, what this tells us about the future is that the Afghan Taliban are clearly factions and it's and it's it's going to be very difficult for them to rein in factionalism this is clear from the letters and this is this is going to be a challenge that that they will continue to face as far as al-qaeda's relationship with the afghan taliban they couldn't be happy and i imagine they're even having to hide even more so than before because from their perspective the afghan taliban betrayed not just al-qaeda but they they betrayed islam by uh, uh, you know, the, you know, and I've been reading Ayman Zawahiri's public statements. He's been calling on the Taliban to realize that you know that that the United Nations is uh, is not God's law. Entering into such organizations, you'd be violating God's law, and so on. So my my sense is that Al Qaeda is even more terrified now of the Afghan Taliban than they ever were. Really? So you, you think looking ahead, they, they still lack a place to be safe? That's what I can glean from the letters. It couldn't be, couldn't be easy for al-Qaeda. Now, this doesn't mean that the Afghan Taliban don't have their problems. I mean, clearly some of them want to take Afghanistan into a different direction. But it is also clear from the letters that factionalism, uh, factionalism within the Taliban is something that will continue to be a major obstacle for for the for the Taliban. Well, you've done a huge amount of work reading all these papers and analysing them and, and uh, drawing all these fascinating conclusions. So thank you very much for, for sharing all your work with us. Well, thank you for hosting me once again.